Hi, Sarah. Hi there, Richard. Welcome to Coffee Talk with Benefits, a podcast brought to you by Seifert Shaw's Employee Benefits and Executive Compensation Department. As your host, Richard Schwartz and I, Sarah Tuzlin, will interview a member of the Seifert's Employee Benefits and Executive Compensation Department or an outside expert in the employee benefits world. In each episode, we'll discuss interesting, tricky, and sometimes amusing issues that come across our desk, all over a cup of coffee. Today, we'll be speaking with Jennifer Kraft, a partner in the Employee Benefits Department at Cyboth Shaw. Jen, why don't you introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about your background? Hi, Richard. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. I'd be happy to. I am a partner in our Chicago office, and I actually have a background in labor and employment litigation originally. But for the past 22 years, I've been practicing in the employee benefit space, both in the health and welfare area, dealing with the Affordable Care Act, wellness, HIPAA, as well as the retirement plan space, guiding companies through designs of their defined contribution and pension plans, as well as administrative issues. I work regularly with plan fiduciaries on general fiduciary governance and guiding them through what can sometimes be sticky situations. I bet. I bet. Well, today we're going to be talking about beneficiary designations. And my first question, Jen, is why are we even talking about beneficiary designations? Why is this an issue for us? What's the big deal? Um, <laughs> makes a beneficiary designation and we follow it. That's right. That's right. Well, you, you might be surprised, but there are actually all sorts of issues that can come up with beneficiary designations. Designations that can't be located. There's no designation on file. Maybe there is a designation, but there's some ambiguity about how it was filled out. Or there could even be disputes about who the proper beneficiary is. And these come into play both on retirement plans and also life insurance plans, for example. So a lot of issues actually can come up with these. So Jen, how do plans collect, retain, and then ultimately determine who the proper beneficiary is and who gets paid the benefit? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and it can vary. So sometimes the plan's record keeper will agree to collect and maintain those beneficiary designations through an electronic designation on their, their web platform. That's becoming more and more common. We're seeing that a lot more. I think historically, these beneficiary designations were a lot of times kept within the benefits department of a company, and it can be either. There's also the question about who makes that ultimate decision, to your point, of who's going to receive the benefit. And sometimes the plan's record keeper or insurer will do this, but sometimes that's limited to certain situations. So it's good to check with your record keeper to see if that's a service that they are currently handling and or if it's an optional service that they might have available. But it's good to understand who ultimately will make that decision. If it's not the record keeper, then the plan administrative fiduciary would ultimately have the responsibility for making that decision. That's a really interesting point, Jen, because just the other day, a client called and told me that they have a plan that they just found out their record keeper was taking beneficiary designations for that the administrator, the employer, did not know about. And in their mind, they were maintaining and taking beneficiary designations. So now they have several thousand people who've been identified that may have made beneficiary designations under both the record keeper systems and the employer system. Oh, and then interesting. go through and figure out what's what. That's right. And I, I think with all the new electronic platforms we have, there is you know this new opportunity there. 
But to your point, it's really important to have a clear understanding of, of who is holding the official beneficiary designation to avoid any participant confusion as well. Yeah, absolutely. So what happens in the situation where a participant passes away, but that participant hadn't designated a beneficiary? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and that certainly happens. Most plans do provide for kind of a default hierarchy, if you will, of what to do if there's no named beneficiary. Typically, the, the first in line is a spouse of the participant, if there is one. But if there is no spouse or the spouse has predeceased the participant, then a lot of plans will provide for other default beneficiaries, such as the participant's children, parents, siblings, and ultimately the estate. It's really a plan design issue, though. And what if the beneficiary doesn't want the benefit? I know I've seen that come up in, a, in certain situations where the beneficiary says, well, I just I don't want the plan benefit. Can yeah. someone refuse it? Yeah, absolutely. A beneficiary can certainly refuse it. To avoid being taxed on it, though, um, which is probably ultimately what, what the beneficiary would like as well, there are specific requirements under the IRS has specific requirements that would apply. The plan would need to provide that the benefit could be disclaimed. The disclaimer would need to be in writing and done within a certain period of time after that. Yeah. And I know one um, sort of one issue I've had come up a, a couple of times as well in the context of, of a disclaimer is sometimes the beneficiary will say, well, don't pay it to me. And they'll try to actually direct the benefit to go to somebody else, yeah, which right. <laughs> big no-no there. You still need to follow the beneficiary hierarchy in the plan. So my experience has been that it goes to sort of the next in line. So the beneficiary next in line under the plan. That's exactly right. So when you have those disclaimer situations, what ends up happening is that beneficiary is treated as predeceasing the participant. And so you would go next in line, which kind of gets to an interesting point of, you know, what should those plan design hierarchies look like? Because while they can be, you know, you could provide for every possible scenario, administering those can be a little bit more complex. So for example, if you say it's then going to go to children, it's a matter of finding how many children or siblings, if that's what it is. It's finding, making sure you know all the children and siblings that are involved, being able to track them down to be able to pay out and figuring out what happens if one of those secondary beneficiaries have predeceased the participant as well, kind of what, what happens with that space. So the simpler approach would be to have just the default be the spouse if there is one. And if not, the beneficiary would be the estate. Yeah, and you know what about what about situations where maybe someone comes in and says maybe relatives of the deceased participant and they say, "Look, the estate is not going to go through probate. It is so small. The benefit is small. What do we do in that situation?" Yeah, that's a great question, and that certainly comes up. We've seen that a great deal. The issue there is generally, if under the terms of the plan, it's paid to the estate, then it needs to be paid to the estate as a general rule unless one of these small estate provisions may come into play. So, so most states have a small estate process where if your estate is under a certain amount, then you can kind of act on behalf of the estate but by just kind of completing a small estate affidavit. And it, and it varies by state what the specific requirements are. But essentially that would help in just the kind of situation you've identified where somebody has a small estate, they could fill out the small estate affidavit. And if it's meeting all those requirements, get the payment made directly to the individual rather than 
having to go through probate and open an estate. Yeah. And I know, I think some record keepers have optional services for those. I guess whether your record keeper will review those small estate affidavits when they come in, or I know I've reviewed them in the past, quite a few of those as well. So I guess it just depends on what your record keeper is willing to do. Yeah, that's right. But it is good to get some review of those because the state requirements do vary. And, And one of the reasons the beneficiary designation is so important in general is that if a plan pays out a benefit and later down the road, somebody comes forward saying you've paid it out incorrectly and I really should have been paid to me, the company could be on the hook for funding a benefit twice and and having to pay it twice. So it is important to make sure you've kind of gone through your due diligence there on the small estate piece as well. Like that, like that. So, so what happens when there's a dispute as to who's the beneficiary and the plan or the administrator just isn't sure? It's a great question. I mean, there there really is, you know, as, as we said, it's kind of ultimately the plan administrative fiduciary's responsibility to determine who is the plan beneficiary. So typically, if there is a question about that, it could go through the regular claims and appeals process under the plan where there could be um, evidence submitted of, of who is the appropriate beneficiary. In some situations, you know, we've had some scenarios where it's really fact intensive. I, I had a situation, for example, where there was a claim by the participant's brother that the beneficiary designations were fraudulently obtained and, and that they were under, he was under undue influence in, in making those changes, which gets into a whole lot of factual analysis there. So plans do have an option of considering an, what we call an interpleader, where basically the plan files a lawsuit and, and places the funds in the care of the court and the court can decide who the appropriate beneficiary is in, in that situation. Those are Obviously, you know, more complex and, and cost can come into play there. So that's definitely one to seek counsel and talk through. But but it is an option that's out there for plans. Are there typical situations where employers should really be on guard and be looking very closely, more closely at the beneficiary designation? Uh, and the immediate one that comes to mind is a divorce situation. Yeah, yeah. A divorce situation is is a really good example. So generally speaking, you know, if a spouse is listed as the named beneficiary and the participant passes away and in the interim that there's been a divorce and so now we have a former spouse who is named as the named beneficiary, we look to the plan rules to decide what happens. So sometimes plans are designed to specifically provide that if there is a divorce, and the spouse has been named, the, the former spouse has been named the beneficiary, then that beneficiary designation is automatically deemed revoked as of the time of the divorce. But if the plan does not provide for that, then we would look to just what the beneficiary designation is. And, and so if that is the former spouse, then that would be the proper beneficiary in, in that situation. So you're exactly right, Richard. It's not always just at face value. Sometimes it's a combination of interpreting the beneficiary designation in conjunction with the plan provisions and the facts to see see what is the appropriate decision in that that situation. So Jen, in the context of divorce, there could be a quadro on file. And I guess if there were a quadro on file, we would hope that the account had been segregated so that, that we wouldn't have any of these beneficiary issues pop up. But it seems like it may still be a good idea just to look back as part of this process and determine 
if there was a divorce and a quadro on file for the particular benefit. Absolutely, Sarah, you're, you're exactly right. And it's always good just as part of this due diligence process of making the distribution decision to make sure that a quadro doesn't need to yet be applied to that benefit. Oftentimes, once there's a quadro, the accounts are immediately segregated, but that's not always the case. So it's a good double check before the benefit is paid out. You know, all of this discussion, Jen and Sarah, are bringing things to mind that I don't know that a lot of people think about. For example, uh, I have clients that often will merge two separate plans into one plan, and then they're going to have a beneficiary designation under each plan. Which one survives? And, and what would, what do plans typically do in that yeah. context? Yeah, that's a great question and, and good for, for plan sponsors to be thinking about. The beneficiary designation provision or even the default provisions in place, if there isn't a named beneficiary designation, are not protected benefits that would necessarily need to carry over, but it is something that employers should be making a conscious decision about what's going to happen and then communicating in the transition guide with with record keepers, reminding people to make beneficiary designations. If they had submitted paper designations before and those aren't going to be honored under the new system, you know, you just let people know that so they can make a, a new beneficiary designation. As far as kind of which default provisions might apply, if you have somebody who, a participant who passed away before the merger date, then their old plan's default beneficiary provisions would, would apply. But for participants who die after that merger date, the plans, the kind of the surviving plans default provisions could apply as well. The main thing is just to be thinking about these things in advance, make a conscious decision and, and communicate it. So are there other practices that employers can undertake just to help smooth the beneficiary determination process. It just sounds like there's so much to consider as part of this. Yeah, yeah, there, it's a great question. There's a few things. Number one, in the event of some type of, of dispute or to avoid some type of dispute, one best practice we recommend is when you are paying out a benefit and there, there could be potential questions, have the person receiving the fund sign an attestation agreeing that all of the facts that the, the plan knows to be true are in fact true, that this participant was not married, did not have children, whatever the relevant facts are under the default beneficiary designation provisions. That way, if there is some type of issue down, down the road and somebody has signed an attestation and agreed to indemnify the plan, if somebody else comes looking, you, the plan would have some protection in that situation. Another best practice would be to think about how you want to hardwire your rules into the plan with respect to ordering. Do you want to maybe simplify and just have it be the the spouse? And if there is no surviving spouse, then to the estate. Or do you want to have siblings and parents, you know, involved as well and, and children? The simpler approach may be easier as far as trying to track people down and pay benefits out. Another thing to consider, we we talked about the possibility of hardwiring in, in in the event of a divorce, that that's deemed an automatic removal of the spouse as a named beneficiary or maybe stepchildren as well. Those are just kind of design decisions to, to think about. And then finally, I'd say, you know, we're talking about merged plans and being aware of what changes are making. The, the same sort of thing comes up with a record keeper change. Well, thinking about, will the new record keeper require new beneficiary designations? Or are they going to honor existing paper designations or existing electronic designations. Making a conscious decision about those and, and again, communicating is helpful. 
And I, I think the last thing would just be to consider sending reminders to participants and other benefit communications you have just to make sure their beneficiary designations are up to date. And it's always kind of a good housekeeping reminder, both in the 401k plan, but also in the life insurance and other plans that may have beneficiary designations available. Well, all very, very good things to think about. Thank you so much for joining us today and taking the time to talk about this. I know we all have lots of beneficiary issues that come up. So this has been a very helpful and interesting discussion. Well, thank you both for having me. It was great speaking with you both. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Be sure to tune in next time for a discussion with SciFarth partner Liz Deckman about the do's and don'ts of SPD drafting. Thank you for listening to Coffee Talk with Benefits, brought to you by SciFarth Shaw. We invite you to subscribe and follow on your favorite podcasting platform. Learn more at coffeetalkwithbenefits.com.